couple weeks ago, we began a short series which we entitled, How Can I Know the Will of God? And the reason I entitled it that way is because as a pastor, most of the time when people ask questions, it often revolves around the issue of how can I know God's will for my life? Christians wrestle with, Lord, who do you want me to marry? What job do you want me to take? What ministry do you want me involved in? Now, the psalmist said, I delight to do your will, O God. And I think most of us would say amen to that. It's just that we don't always know what God's will is, and that's where the problem lies. And sometimes trying to discern the will of God in our lives can be somewhat of a frustrating and even perplexing process. And so the question remains, how can I know God's will for my life? And we said last time, that before we try to understand or discover the will of God for our lives, we first need to define what we're talking about when we talk about God's will. The theologians have defined the term will of God as having three meanings. There is the sovereign will of God, there is the moral will of God, and then there is the individual will of God. There are a lot of Christians who are agonizing over knowing what God's will is for their lives individually. And we said the best way to know the will of God for your life is to read the word and then say to God, I will, I will. Whatever you have commanded in your word, that I will do, Lord. And again, the idea is if you're following what God has already said, he's going to have an easier time kind of directing you to his will for your life specifically. Now, the psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he, God, delights in his way. The steps of a good man or a good woman are ordered by the Lord. And what that simply means is a good man or a good woman implies someone who is living in obedience to what God has already revealed in his word. We all want to know what God's will is for my life specifically and individually. The problem is God has already revealed in his word his general will for all of our lives as his children. And you know what? I find that if you're not seeking to obey what God has already said, why should he say any more? I mean, if we're not going to listen to what he's already said... Why should he bother giving us any more input? And so that's what we need to focus in on today. Looking at the scriptural will of God, and then next week looking at the specific will of God, or in other words, God's individual will for my life, which is the one I think all of us are really concerned about. But this one is absolutely essential if God is going to lead you specifically in your life. And if you go to the scriptures and study... All the passages on God's will, you will discover there are five things that God desires that make up his basic or general will for our lives. The first one, which is actually the most important, because every other one flows from this one. First and foremost, it is God's will that you be saved. Now that sounds very basic, but that's where it all starts. It is God's will that you be saved. Because God really is only promised to lead his children in his ways. And to be a child of God, you have to bow the knee 
and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then you can pray as Jesus instructed, our Father who art in heaven. Thy will be done on earth through my life, even as you have decided in heaven. But the idea is that unless there's that relationship established where you can say to God, God, you are my Father because I've received your Son, then and only then do you have the right to come to Him and ask Him for anything. So relationship is very important. God desires for us to be saved. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, this is where it all starts. Because everything else flows from this. Unfortunately, telling people that it's God's will that they be saved isn't a very popular message today. The reason is because it implies the existence of a moral God. It implies the existence of a moral God who has imposed upon mankind his moral standard, his standard of right and wrong. And because he's a moral God, it means that if people violate his standard, God is going to have to punish them, and he doesn't really want to. That's why he sent his son. For God uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. He wants to save us. Of course, most in this room already accepted that offer and are saved, but God wants to save unbelievers. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God cried out, this is his heart, to wayward Israel. Many in Israel were unbelievers. And God cried out to the prophet Ezekiel, turn, please turn from your sins. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. God says, I want to save you. Come to me, and I'll give you salvation. But we're living in a very secularized, pluralistic society today, and natural man doesn't want to hear that he is a sinner and that if he doesn't repent, he is on his way to hell. He does not want to hear that. And so it's not a popular message, but folks, that is the message of the New Testament, that is the gospel, that God so loves sinners that he sent his son to die for them. And anyone, doesn't matter how bad you are, anyone who comes to Christ and receives him as Lord and Savior, God will wash your sins away. That's an awesome thing to think about. So God, it's his first, first and foremost, it's his will that you be saved. Secondly, after you're saved now, it's God's will that you be spirit-filled. In Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 15 through 18, Paul said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Upon reading it, you might wonder why Paul would contrast being filled with the Spirit with getting drunk. It doesn't really seem appropriate, does it? Until you realize that when you get drunk, you're submitting yourself to the control of the alcohol, which permeates through your entire system and winds up controlling you. And when the alcohol takes over, you become the kind of person the alcohol influences you 
to be. That's what under the influence is all about. And it's a dangerous thing when you're under the influence of alcohol and you operate heavy equipment or drive an automobile. That's why we have laws. If you get stopped when you're driving uh, drunk, you'll get uh, a ticket, DUI, driving under the influence. And that's bad. It's bad to give yourself over to the control of something like alcohol or drugs. In fact, in Paul's day, the pagans believed that taking certain drugs, what the Bible calls pharmakia, hallucinogenic, conscious-altering drugs like uh, LSD or other things, uh, they would connect with their gods. They believed drunkenness was an other, another way to enhance their communion with their gods. And Paul is kind of picking up on that and using it as a negative illustration of the positive truth he's trying to present. He said, look, don't think that being under the influence of alcohol is going to draw you close to the God of heaven. As a Christian, of course, the pagans believe that, but we are not of that mindset. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit of God because he will open the door to greater communion with God. And here's the thing. When you yield yourself to alcohol, it takes over and controls you. If you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, he permeates throughout your body. He takes over, not in the sense that you don't have a free will anymore or you're a puppet, but you willingly are yielding control of your life to him. He takes over and begins to guide your decisions. He begins to guide your actions. And those actions will always lead you on a path closer and closer to God. Now, you say, well, that's sounds really great, and I, I would really love to be filled with the Spirit. Can you help me with this? Well, from just a practical standpoint, being filled with the Spirit is simply saturating yourself with the presence of Jesus every day. It, it's going through your day, consciously aware of Christ's presence all around you and so on. Being filled with the Spirit is a matter of everyday living. It's having the presence of Jesus. You're aware of his presence, but also it's having the mind of Christ. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I do always those things that please my Father. I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And that really is the key. That really is the key to everything God wants to do in our lives, that we always put him first and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus said, I do always those things that please my Father, he was talking about obedience. Obedience. How can God really lead disobedient Christians? How do you get saturated with Christ? Well, very simply, by studying the Word of God. You see, the more I focus on the Word of God, Jesus said, the volume of the book, it is written of me, he said. The whole Bible speaks of Christ. And when you read a novel, you are becoming one with the author in a sense. Your mind and his mind are kind of merging in this story that you're reading. You take on his thoughts in a sense. And if he's an ungodly person you take on some ungodly thinking. But when you fill your mind with the word of God, you take on the mind of Christ. And once you have the mind of Christ, once you're saturated with the will of God as written in his word, the spirit of God has a much easier time leading your life because you already know what God has said. And now it's just a matter of applying it, which is the strength that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's saturating yourself with the word of God, though. It's interesting in Ephesians 5, when Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes on from that point to say, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Servants, obey your masters, etc. 
When you come to the book of Colossians, which is a, uh, in many ways it parallels Ephesians. In Colossians, Paul the Apostle said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right after that, he said, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents, servants obey your masters. And I think what Paul was doing is he was telling us that, look, to be filled with the Spirit equals to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you've got to saturate your mind with the word of God. It's the only way. How could a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, the world's attitudes and morals and, 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 and actions, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Most spiritual warfare, listen to me, is a battle for control of your thought life. The God of this world is pumping into the minds of people 24-7 his ungodly philosophies through television, movies, radio, everything. He's brainwashing the people of this world to think ungodly thoughts to keep them away from God. When we get saved, we have to reprogram ourselves, unbrainwash ourselves, and we do that by filling our minds with the Word of God. It cleanses us from all the ungodly thinking and philosophies that we pumped into our brains for the many years we got saved, before we got saved. And so now uh, it's just filling our, our thoughts with the mind of Christ. Very important point. Now, let me say this. Unfortunately, when it comes to God's will, a lot of Christians, and I, I like to say they're all young Christians, but not always. A lot of Christians who really want to know God's will for their life will step over completely this very crucial step of being filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. They won't really, maybe they don't fully understand what that means. Maybe they're not willing to totally submit themselves to God's control in their lives. I don't know. But I know this. If you're not willing to fill your mind with the Word of God to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, if you're still bound and determined to do your thing and just kind of bring God into the process to say, well, Lord, here's what I want, now bless it, God is not going to be able to lead your life. I mean, how can He lead you if you're not going where He's leading? That's the whole idea behind being Spirit-filled. It's being controlled by, influenced by, the Spirit has taken you where God's going. If we try to do it our, our own thing and go our own way, then there's no way God is going to really be able to lead your life. And so a lot of Christians who, who don't really say to God, Lord, I want to be spirit-controlled, come to God and say, Lord, who do I marry, Bill or Sue or, you know, what job should I take? What house should I buy? And the problem is they make a lot of very damaging, detrimental decisions that lead to a lot of heartache. Because God really can't control a person who is not wanting to be controlled. So sometimes Christians say, why do I always feel like I'm on a, some kind of a divine treasure hunt when I'm trying to find God's will? Why is he making it so hard, folks? He's not making it hard. God wants you to do his will even more than you want to do it. He's not hiding it, playing games with you. His will is expressed very clearly in the pages of Scripture. First of all, that you be saved. Secondly, that you be spirit-filled. Number three, it is the will of God that you be sanctified. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, 
that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What does sanctification mean? Uh, It comes from the same Greek root that the word holiness comes from, hagias. And it simply means drawing away from the world, drawing closer to God. That's what sanctification is. It's moving away from the world, the world's thinking, the world's actions, the world's philosophies, moving closer and closer to the Lord. I mean, isn't that where we want to be? Some Christians seem to want to learn how they can walk the fence to be as just enough inside the border of salvation that they're saved, but still really nudging up against the world quite a bit. That's a dangerous place to be in. You don't want to be there. You want to try to get as close to God as you can. That's the secret. That's the goal of Christian life, purity and holiness. And yet when we hear these terms today as Christians, sometimes we get very uncomfortable because they sound kind of puritanical and archaic. Purity, holiness. Oh, it sounds so King James and so, you know, it's like, oh. But you know what? They are absolutely crucial parts of practical Christian living. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives us several principles for purity. I'll give you a couple. The first principle is obvious. He said, avoid sexual immorality. Avoid sexual immorality. In other words, stay away from sexual sins. Now, did Paul mean that sex was evil or dirty? Of course not. Sex has been ordained by God. God gave us sex. And when it's used in the context of marriage, it's a very beautiful thing. When it's used outside the context of marriage, that's when it becomes perverted and destructive. And so sexual immorality refers to any sexual practice outside of marriage, which would include everything from premarital sex to perversions like bisexuality and homosexuality. And let me say this. No matter what your age, the sex drive is a powerful force. And if it's not being controlled by the Holy Spirit... It's going to control you. And when that happens, it brings into your life all kinds of negative consequences that are definitely not God's will for your life. Things like sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, and broken lives that result. These are not God's will. Another principle for purity is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul simply adds these words, Each of you should control his or her own body, not in passion of lust like those who do not know God. It all starts with controlling our bodies. And that starts by what we let into our minds. Remember, the Christian life is really a struggle for control of your mind. The devil wants to control your thoughts, and the Holy Spirit wants to control your thoughts, and whoever controls your thinking is going to control you. That's the way it works. So if we're going to control ourselves... We have to be very careful what enters into our minds. Solomon said, Above all else, guard your hearts, for out of them flow the issues of life. And before something enters into your heart, it first comes into your mind. And so the mind is the entrance point uh, that we need to guard. This all starts with what you watch on TV or at the movies, what you fill your mind with. You know, there are a lot of people who don't engage directly in immorality physically. But they entertain themselves by watching others do these things. It's vicarious immorality. Many people don't realize that Jesus, and they think it's okay because they're not doing it. 
well, I don't do any of that. I just watch other people do it. But Jesus said, if you look at a woman talking to the men, to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery in the eyes of God with her because God looks at the heart. All sin starts in the heart. And before it ever gets translated into actions, God already sees the, the uh, desires of the heart. And if they're wicked desires, then in God's eyes, sin has already been committed. But I'll tell you what, the devil understands the power of images. And he has used them quite effectively to destroy many lives. You know, there was a time in our country where if a man, and usually men are the ones given over to looking at pornography, but there was a time in our country where if a man wanted to look at pornography, he would have to go into some seedy part of town, find himself a theater that showed X-rated movies, or find an adult bookstore that sold all that junk. And once he bought the magazine and looked through it, or once the movie was finished, he had consumed that pornography. But today it's different. Today, because of the Internet and even cable television, a man could sit in the comfort and privacy of his own home and watch an endless stream of sexually explicit images that never end. That never end. And I believe that this has really given rise to all the violent crimes against women, the rapes and things that have escalated exponentially, especially the crimes against children. Pedophilia is exploding around the country. There are websites that you can go on. If you give your address and your zip code, it will tell you how many sex offenders are registered around your house. You'd be shocked. And I think the problem is that A man can only look at these images so long before they stop satisfying him, and now he's got to take it to the next level and act it out. And that's why I think you see so much increase in pedophilia and other things is because men are feeding their minds nonstop, some men, on explicit pornographic images. Now, hear me out. The sex drive is a very powerful force, and it doesn't really matter how old you are. I heard a story of a a 12-year-old boy Christian home, Christian family. And he somehow got hooked up with these 900 numbers, these sex numbers where you call a certain number and some person, some woman on the other end speaks in a very sexually graphic way and you pay for that by the minute. And this young kid got hooked on this. I think pornography has a demonic hold on people. I think it's a spiritual thing. I really do. And he got hooked, and he listened hour after hour after hour. His parents didn't realize what was going on. And after filling his mind for several days on these calls, he went next door and raped his neighbor's three-year-old little girl. He couldn't control himself. This is a very powerful thing. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't even own the Internet. I don't look at that stuff. But you got cable TV with movie channels. That's almost as bad. In fact, even regular TV, let's face it, every season gets more and more graphic, more violent, more soft core pornography. We have to be careful if we're going to really be where God wants us to be and do the will of God. We have to be careful with what enters into our minds through our eyes. The psalmist said in Psalm 101, I will walk within my house. That's where it all starts, with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. And God says, come out from among them, my people, and be separate. Touch not that which is unclean. And God says, what are you doing as a child of God, 
being entertained by immoral images that feed lust and take you away from me when it's my will that you be sanctified. And some would say, well, you know, you're just putting me under the law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Folks, Christian purity and holiness are part and parcel of the Christian life. This has nothing to do with Old Testament law. Paul, the the apostle, the apostle of grace, had a lot to say in his epistles about purity and about holiness. And now these are essential if we're going to really walk with God. It has nothing to do with putting you under the law. It has everything to do with Christian sanctification and drawing close to God. And that should be the desire of every one of our hearts as the children of God. And listen to me. If a Christian is running around trying to find God's will for their life individually, but is feeding their mind on sexually immoral images or is involved in immoral situations, how can God really lead your life? Again, this is a very important foundational truth. And so it's God's will that you, first of all, be saved. It's God's will that you be spirit-filled. It's God's will that you be sanctified, that you be pure and holy and fit for his use. Number four, it's God's will that you be submissive. And the wives are thinking, oh boy, here it comes. No, ladies, I'm not really, this doesn't mean wives only. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Peter said to all of us, he said, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter says, well, look, we're to submit ourselves to the laws of our land. Now, some would say, whoa, wait a minute. What if I don't agree with those laws? What if those laws are unjust? And what about Peter and the other apostles who were dragged into court one day and, and ordered not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus? And Peter said, well, you know, we must obey God rather than men. What about that? Well, that's true. If our government ever tells us not to do something God tells us to do, or tells us to do something God has told us not to do, then we must obey God rather than men. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about being good citizens. He's talking about obeying those laws that don't contradict the word of God, that don't, you know, impose on your convictions. Peter says it's a good witness to be a good citizen, to be law-abiding, hard-working, that kind of thing. That's a good witness. And that's why he goes on to say that we are to live as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. But as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So not only are we to pay our taxes and obey traffic laws and and other laws of our land, but Peter goes on to say that we are also then to honor and obey our Bosses, really, he talks about masters. In his day, of course, he's talking to slaves. He said servants. What he's really talking about is bond slaves or or, uh, slaves. Uh, Servants, be submissive to your master with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also the harsh. Now, we don't live with slavery here in America. And we don't don't have, you know, a, a slave master that lords it over us, although some of you may disagree. Uh, now, man, you don't know my boss. He's a real slave driver. But, 
you know, we don't live under slavery. And if Peter, and of course he's not the only one in the New Testament, if the New Testament tells us, those who were slaves, I should say, that they are to respect their masters, with whom they have no choice in the matter, they have to serve, and to obey not just the good and the gentle, but the harsh, how much more so does that apply to us who live in a free society, and we get to choose the company we want to work for and the boss we want to work for? How much more are we then to honor our supervisors and to obey what they, you know, to honor authority, respect authority? doesn't mean you always agree with your boss. doesn't mean you always agree with every decision he or she makes. But, you know, we're living in a very ungodly, rebellious world. And when a person is humble and submissive, it's a very powerful witness. Jude said that godliness respects authority, even if that authority is corrupt. And he gives the example of Lucifer, who was the head angel in heaven. Of course, we know what happened with him. He rebelled. But Michael, who was a chief prince, when disputing with Lucifer over the body of Moses, did not dare bring against him a railing accusation, Jude says, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And Jude goes on to say that, look, godliness respects authority, even if that authority is corrupt. Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. Yet Daniel understood that he was in Babylon because the will of God allowed it. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, therefore he was going to respect the office, and he served Nebuchadnezzar with all of his heart, and I believe it was Daniel's humility and respect for Nebuchadnezzar that eventually won Nebuchadnezzar to the Lord. I think we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But I think that it's important that we understand this principle. If we're going to be Christians and do God's will, submission is a part of his general overarching will for all of his children's lives. And so it not only includes obeying the laws of our land and obeying our employers, but Peter says it includes respecting everybody, not walking around with a chip on your shoulder and rebellious and so on and so forth, but with humility and honor, giving preference to one another. And again, if we're wanting to see God work in our lives and lead us in the specific matters, we have to obey God in these matters. If you're rebellious and you're always arguing with authority, and, and if you're a wife, you're always arguing with your husband, you refuse to submit unless you get your way, and if you're a man, you're always uh, fighting with your employer, or you're, you're always a problem in the church with the leaders of the church, or, or something, how is God going to really bless and use and lead you? So it's just a very basic principle. It's God's will that we be saved. It's God's will that we be spirit-filled. It's his will be, we be sanctified and that we be submissive. And the fifth and last principle the Bible teaches about God's will is that it is God's will that we be willing to suffer. Now, when I say that, the Bible isn't talking about suffering with the normal irritations of life that we all have to deal with, like when somebody cuts you off in traffic or when the kids are driving you crazy, or if your mother-in-law is a little out of control and, you know, she's my cross, I'm suffering for the Lord. That's really not, you know, that's really not what the Bible's talking about. It's talking about suffering for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake. Peter wrote two letters to Christians who were suffering for their faith. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, Verses 12 through 16, first of all, Peter says this. Let's listen to him. He said, Beloved Christians, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. 
But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. On the part of the world, they blaspheme Jesus. But when we get persecuted for standing up for him, then he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Then verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And that's the key. If you're suffering for doing good, for doing what's right, for righteousness sake, you're glorifying God and God is going to honor that and bless that. If you're suffering because you're obnoxious and the boss, your boss says, look, you're not even working. You're always got the Bible open. You're always, you know, trying to evangelize everybody. Knock it off. And you say, oh, praise God, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. No. No, not really. But if you do good, and you work hard, and you respect your boss, and you stand up for Jesus, and you suffer persecution for it, you know what? That is precious in God's sight. Because we are living in a very ungodly world, aren't we? And Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you because you belong to the world. But because you belong to me and I've called you out of the world, therefore the world is going to hurt, uh, hate you and persecute you. It makes me very uncomfortable when I see some religious leaders who everybody loves. I mean, the whole world. There are some Christian leaders today the whole world seems to love. And I don't know. Jesus said, Woe unto you if all men speak well of you, for so they did the false prophets who were before you. If you're going to live for the Lord, and I'm talking about living not obnoxiously, but, but you're standing up for the Lord, and you're you know being a light, and you're being salt, you're going to irritate the world. Because the world is an open sore, and we're salt. The world is in darkness, and you turn on a light, a bright light in somebody's eyes that's been in darkness for a long time, it is irritating. If you just be what God's called you to be, you're going to come up against, and you're going to confront a very ungodly world. And they're going to react. Some will get saved, but others will persecute you. But Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For the, so they persecuted the true prophets who were before you. Look, nobody wants to be persecuted. I mean, you know, I don't wake up in the morning going, boy, I hope I get persecuted today. I don't go out looking for trouble. I don't go out and get in somebody's face and aggravate them and really, you know, hit them with the Bible so that they persecute me. I mean, you have to be a little off to do that. But I'll tell you this, if you do stand up for Jesus... And you get persecuted. You know what? Rejoice. You know why? Because you're on the right team. You're on the right team. And so it's God's will that we suffer. Not because he likes to see us suffer, although it does produce some pretty 
important qualities in our lives. It's just that when you stand up for the truth and you belong to the truth, you're going to suffer. And if you're not suffering, something's wrong with your whole approach to Christianity. So the suffering is an indication of who you belong to. You don't belong to the world. If you belong to the world, the world will love you. You belong to the Lord. And so it's God's will that you, first of all, be saved. God wants to save you. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, know this. God loves you so much, he gave his son to die that you wouldn't have to go to hell. That's how much he loves you. God doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to save you. And from that point, he wants to do all kinds of other wonderful things in your life. But it all starts at the point of salvation. Don't resist him. He's not the enemy. He's the one that's pursuing you that you might be saved. People are running from God. I don't know why. Why are you running from God? The devil is the one you need to run from into the arms of God. So God wants us all to be saved. Secondly, God wants us all to be spirit-filled. He wants our lives to be submitted to, controlled by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Forget about wine, drugs, everything else that the world offers. God wants you to be controlled by His Spirit because when you're controlled by the Spirit, then He can lead your life in the right paths. And that's what He wants to do. So don't rebel, submit. Let the Holy Spirit control you. Next, he wants you to be sanctified, which simply means you draw away from the world and you draw close to God. And of course, that means that you don't fill your mind with the garbage of the world, but you fill your mind with the word of God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Next, he wants you to be submissive. He wants you to obey not only the laws of this land, but of course, the laws of God. He wants you to be obedient. You know, I said in the first service that there's a lot of people that think that God's laws and commandments are restrictive and designed to keep them from having fun. How sad that is. God's laws are not designed. Now, God is not a cosmic killjoy that just sits up in heaven thinking how he can keep us from having fun. And so he's just really rigid and has all these rules that he just imposes on us because he's just really wanting us to just be unhappy and miserable. That's a lot of people's concept of religion. I told you about Hugh Hefner, who said that churches, they're really, nobody likes to go to church. It's so ugh, negative, you know. And, and, and if Jesus was alive today, he would definitely be on staff at Playboy because Jesus wanted us to have a good life. Now, this is a very deceived, deluded man. But that's, in a milder form, a lot of the concept that people have. I mean, God wants me to ha be happy. Doesn't God want me happy? He wants you holy. When you elevate your happiness above all else, that's when you get into trouble. Because now all of a sudden, God is your servant who only exists to make you happy. Instead of you being his servant who exists to be holy and to glorify him. But you know what? God gives us rules to protect us. If you lived on a very busy corner and your backyard backed up to a very busy street and you had little children and you wanted to let them play in the backyard, but you didn't want them to wander out in the street and get hurt or even killed, you'd put a fence up. Any responsible parent would do that. 
And that fence is not designed to hinder the child from having fun. It's designed to protect the child so that they would go on living. People today look at God's rules and commandments as God trying to keep us from having fun. And so what do they do? They climb the fence. And they wander out into the street. And they pay the price. we got to stop looking at God as our adversary. That's the devil's concept that he pumps into people's thinking. God says, don't do this. Why? Because I love you and know it's going to bring terrible consequences into your life. And I don't want you to have to deal with those consequences. But if you do it, know this, it's going to be very unpleasant. And so God is trying to keep us from being hurt. He wants us to be submissive. And yes, to those in authority. Because godliness is humble and respectful of authority. And finally, he wants us to be willing to suffer for his name's sake. And you know what, guys? In America, we don't see too much suffering for Christ yet. And yet, I do think it is coming. In fact, maybe you've been following in the news that just last week, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor of California, signed into law over the protests of Christians. Jim Dobson was on his radio show, telling Christians, please call in. If this passes, we are in big trouble. It was a bill designed that you can't say anything against homosexuality, even from the pulpit, without being charged with a hate crime. This is already the law in Canada. In Canada, you can't even speak out against homosexuality by reading from the Bible. There's a gentleman who put an ad in the paper, a Christian pastor, and all he did was put... Uh, just an image like you see maybe on a washroom door of, a, just, of two men holding hands with a circle around it and a line through it. And underneath, he just quoted out of Leviticus chapter 18, which condemned homosexuality. He was arrested. He was fined $5,000. If it happens again, he probably is going to spend some time in jail. And so I was just waiting for it to come to America. I knew it was coming. This is the, the first step now, whereby the government is going to tell us not to do something God has told us to do. To speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth. And now, it's coming down to us pastors, we have to obey God rather than men. So, it's coming. The persecution is coming more and more. And God wants us to be willing to stand up and say, look, it's time that I come out of the closet of my Christianity. I mean, everybody's coming out of the closet except Christians. Stand up for the Lord. The world is not afraid to speak its perverted philosophies in your hearing, to tell its dirty jokes. Why can't we in love tell them what we believe, what the Bible says? And so we need to be willing to suffer for his sake. He suffered for us. Why are we not willing to suffer for him? Now, we're done. Let me just close by saying this. I know that a lot of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, you know, all these biblical principles are fine, and I understand what you're saying, but they're general. They're general. I, I need to know, you know, who does God want me to marry? I need to know what job to take, what house to buy. I mean, there's a million other decisions that affect my everyday life. I need to know what God's will is in these matters. I understand that. I, I fully understand that. And we'll get to that. But first things first, guys. God is not going to lead you in the specific matters of your life if you're unwilling to obey God in the general things he's already revealed in his word. Again, the psalmist said, 
The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. A good man or woman implies somebody who is following after God. The Lord is my shepherd. And if I follow him, I will walk in the right path. If you're a good man or woman, if you're saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and willing to suffer for his name, then your steps are going to be ordered by the Lord, even when you don't sense God's presence or even hear his voice speaking to your heart. Let me close with one scripture that I never, I've, I've taught on many times. The one that says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I've always taught, look, what that means to me is, if I make God number one, if I love him with all my heart, if he's my first love, well, then he'll give me the desires of my heart because if he really is number one and I love him above all else, then all the desires of my heart are only going to be things that he himself delights in, right? But I was reading another pastor this week who defined it or interpreted it this way. He said, if I delight myself in the Lord, if he's number one, my first love, he will give me the desires of my heart. He'll put the desires in my heart so that when I don't hear his voice or sense his presence in a decision, if I really want to do what pleases him and I go by what my heart is telling me, you know, if you really love God and want to do his will, then sometimes all you have is your heart to go on. But know this and trust this, that God will put into your heart godly desires. And those desires will then lead your life and hit the right paths. Now, we have to give a little caveat because, you know, we have to make sure that our, you know, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. So sometimes we think we want God's will and we want to honor God, but that's not the case. So next time we'll kind of look through that at that a little more in detail. But, you know, do what God has already commanded you to do, and then God will take care of the rest. He will lead your life because he wants to. And just obey him in what he's already revealed and then he'll make his will specifically for your life clearer as time goes on.